we're really at the beginning of seeing the potential of what can be done with the with the waste with the trash and uh, you know how we can really truly create the circular economy that um, that we've been talking about for many years now 10 years 20 years into the future I really see a world where the carbon will be in a loop and we will be taking waste carbon into products again. It doesn't necessarily have to be a coffee cup becomes a coffee cup, but what it becomes is about is about the, the molecules, right? It becomes about the atoms and the molecules and taking those from the feedstock that we have available in a, in a mixed pool of hydrocarbons and taking that into, in the most efficient way via the processes and the plants that we build back into usable products and having that truly become an integrated and sustainable chain. Welcome to Engineering Matters. I'm Bernadette Ballantyne. And I'm Alex Conacher. And for this episode, we have partnered with WSP to investigate a truly revolutionary technology that's turning waste... Non-recyclable waste that's being dumped in landfills all over the world... ...into sustainable biofuels, chemicals and products that could support a wide range of industries in lowering their carbon emissions. We've developed and commercialised a a unique gasification technology which produces advanced biofuels and circular chemicals from non-recyclable waste. Andrea Redford is the Chief Business Development Officer for Canadian Advanced Biofuel Manufacturing Technology Company, Enerchem. I lead the, um, the strategy and the implementation of the deployment of Anachem's proprietary technology on a global basis. So essentially what that means is we work out um, the best sets of conditions and deployment scenarios for Anachem's decarbonisation technology. Decarbonisation technology, which in this case uses thermochemical gasification to process waste and turn it into useful gases. Materials are basically fed into a high temperature and pressure vessel, where oxygen and steam are applied, causing a series of chemical reactions that convert the waste into a gaseous form of the most basic molecules. These new gases are carbon monoxide and hydrogen. Better known as syngas. So essentially what we do is we want to turn that syngas into products which are drop in and uh, able to directly replace products which are currently used in the industry in fuels and chemicals. We take the syngas, which is the CO and the hydrogen, and then we convert that into molecules such as methanol, which is obviously a simple alcohol. Um, It's used in both fuels and chemicals applications. We can also convert into ethanol, which is the, uh, the next step in terms of alcohol. Or we can take that syngas through other pathways um, to make other chemicals or via technology such as Fischer-Tropes technology uh, to make synthetic aviation fuel. And one of the best things about it is that it's using waste that would otherwise be shoved into landfill. That distinction of non-recyclable is really important because this is um, the waste that would otherwise be destined for landfill or in some cases an incineration. 
Right now, Enochem's gasification technology is being deployed on its largest project to date, the Varenne Carbon Recycling Plant in Quebec, Canada. Where it will take 200,000 tonnes per year of non-recyclable and forestry waste. And turn it into around 125 million litres per year of biofuels, which is equivalent to 50 Olympic-sized swimming pools. Construction is about to begin, and WSP is responsible for detailed engineering design and procurement, so that this technology becomes a real piece of critical infrastructure. The sheer magnitude and size of the project makes it extremely um, exciting for our teams and for myself. And at the end of the day, it's just a very cool project to work on. Ali Ashraf is project manager for the engineering part of the Varenne Carbon Recycling Plant. Um, nothing like it exists in the world, and so we're able to take byproducts that are normally either sent to landfill or incineration or essentially disposed of uh, in, in non-clean uh, manners. And we take all of that, those carbon-rich materials and we convert them into something that's value-added to the economy and ultimately uh, represents a, a fantastic proposition for environmental conservatism, um, overall sustainability, and, and bringing towards a, a cleaner, a greener, cleaner future. It's exciting work for an engineer. I think each of us is, is cognizant of, of the environmental pressures uh, that we have, uh, you know, given global climate change. And, um, and uh, we all try to do our part, uh, either at home or, or with our, with our uh, you know, friends. And, and I think that the, the benefit here is that we're able to, to take our, our talents and expertise that we've grown through more conventional industries and really bring it to, to, uh, to the forefront in order to really make a major and lasting contribution to, to this industry. Exciting, groundbreaking, but also challenging. And there are two main obstacles that the team really faced when taking on this project. Gasification is not new, but the scale of this brings its own challenges from both a physical infrastructure perspective and also ensuring that there is a market for these products. So when Enerchem initially started, they started with a, um, a lab concept about 20 years ago, and they were able to come with, I guess, a pilot plant in Westbury. The, the first commercialization occurred in Edmonton um, about five to six years ago. And uh, there we take the MSW. Municipal solid waste. Which would be the landfill portion from their um, sorting facility that the city of Edmonton runs. So this is the heterogeneous mixed reject from the MRF. MRF, Materials Recovery Facility. In Edmonton. And we process this in our gasifier in the facility there. And that gasifier is the, the commercial size gasifier that we are currently implementing across all of our commercial projects. But to get to that point was a long road of measured scale-up steps all the way through our um, R&D facilities, our innovation center, pilot scale facilities, which are located in Westbury in Quebec, to that, that full-size gasifier that we operate. So this is really just something which truly has been the work of, of decades to get us to this point. The Varenne project might have the same commercial size gasifier, but the scale of the complex is much larger, which was a key challenge for Ali and the team. The largest challenge we have right now is, is just the issue of scale. And the other major challenge we have is, is tied to technology. 
because unlike previous gasifiers, Enerchem have made major progress in terms of the ability of their technology to work with a very mixed waste feedstock to create a consistent end product. And that's very difficult. So difficult that no one's done it yet. Essentially, we have to have a plant that's able to take vast and large amounts of very variable feedstock and convert it into very fixed and very high quality products that are sold back into the market. So the challenge with that is to have a plant that is, is able to be variable and it can adjust and adapt to the various inputs and produce the very fixed output at a scale that makes it commercially viable while also being flexible enough to adapt to the various uh, you know, products that we're coming in and treating and handling. The gasifier complex will look more like a petrochemical refinery than a waste processing site. But it's the process that drives the design. And both Andrea and Ali describe several key steps. There's a, a feeding system, the gasification, the syngas production, and then the methanol. The methanol island, as we call it. And it all begins with the waste. So the first step is, is in the feedstock preparation and receiving. And what that involves is essentially waste handling, material handling, and mining-like equipment where we receive material, we sort it, we shred it, uh, we dry it, um, and we have essentially a feeding system. That goes then into the gasification portion of the plant, which is the proprietary technology, where we essentially convert uh, these carbon-rich residues or waste products into a synthetic gas. There are different types of gasifiers, and Enerchem uses what's known as a fluidized bed reactor, where the gasification medium is supplied through the base of the reactor and can be operated at lower temperatures than some of the other technologies. We do run a relatively low severity process compared to some other gasification technologies which are out there. This is an aspect of our process which delivers increased efficiency compared to some of the alternatives. This efficiently produced syngas then has to be cleaned. And we take that into the next part of the plant, which is the cleaning and conditioning portion, which involves uh, scrubbing towers, water treatment, and a separation of residues. Um, what's interesting is that both the gasification and cleaning condition are sort of first of their kind. They involve equipment that, that doesn't exist anywhere else. So you can imagine that we, in, in designing these equipments and, and with our engineers, designers, and partners, um, we approach several vendors with, with various requirements and design criteria that they've simply never seen before. This is mainly related to the challenge already mentioned, scale. Some of the process requirements and mechanical requirements and loads that we're designing to are really at the limit of, of what conventional products, technologies and manufacturers can provide. And for problem-solving engineers like Ali and the other 120 professionals on his team, scaling up design to support the energy transition is an exciting problem to have. The next step of the plant then is, uh, is to take that syngas that is produced and go through a process of, uh, of uh, synthesis and product purification to ultimately convert that syngas, which is composed of primarily hydrogen and carbon monoxide and other carbon uh, gases, and clean it to the point where we're able to essentially produce methanol, uh, ethanol, and other um, byproducts for, for the biofuels and, and chemical industry. The methanol product will be destined for fuels applications. There's obviously quite a high demand for low carbon methanol. You've probably seen there's a, a, lot, of, um, a lot of buzz right now around um, methanol for marine fuel. 
a lot of demand for this, so that's definitely a potential for the consortium to place the product. But a high degree of interest, but right now the highest value is, is in the fuel space for the product. The consortium that raised the 875 million Canadian dollar project investment consists of Shell, Suncor and Proman, with each partner bringing their expertise in traditional energy sectors and petrochemicals to the biofuels space. But before processing can begin, Ali and his team have to design and deliver the facility, which will sit on a footprint of around 500,000 square feet or 46,000 square metres and also includes one of the world's largest electrolyzers for making green hydrogen, using the plentiful supply of hydropower that Canada has an abundance of. Most of the buildings are industrial process plants with the associated pipework, as well as the tall, thin distillation columns. The interesting part about the vis visual profile of this plant is that it's, it's very much a little bit like a, like a Lego structure. The unique design challenge we have here is that we, uh, we are designing everything in modular structures so everything may look a little like uh, like a little lego brick that's stacked on one of, uh, on one of each uh, in order to have an ultra modular design that allows us to have various uh, flexibility and expansion as well as overall um, construction uh, opportunities sitting on the banks of the saint lawrence river Varenne is around 30 minutes southeast of Montreal. Which will enable components and construction materials to be floated along to site, reducing road traffic. But as any experienced civil engineer will tell you, the success of a project starts with understanding the ground that it's being constructed in. When Enercam approached us uh, before the project started, uh, they came to us with, a, with an early geotechnical investigation study. And, uh, and after looking at it closely with them, we recommended additional geotechnical investigations be performed, uh, given that we were entering a detailed engineering phase uh, that would require additional uh, information and, and tests. And the findings showed that the ground conditions were much worse than anyone had predicted. What we have here is a very silty clay. It's a bit like, uh, like a Swiss cheese, I suppose. Silty clay has larger particles and larger spaces between them than a more uniform clay, which massively affects the ground's performance and how it reacts to the structures that are being placed in it. This silty clay is basically not as strong for day-to-day -day pressures or in the event of something much less common like an earthquake. Less overall barrier capacity and more subject to uh, ampli amplification following seismic conditions. And so you can imagine a world where if you've got um, a very uh, clay-like uh, structure or, or subsurface condition with a lot of piles, following a, um, a, uh, an earthquake or seismic event, there's the risk of essentially a liquefaction of, uh, of, that, uh, of that soil. And so designing uh, piles and design foundation systems that can resist these, uh, these potential conditions gets uh, extra challenging in terms of uh, the size and spacing of, of piles, uh, their depth, and how we optimize uh, the structures above ground to ultimately ensure that the design is safe. And that is the number one priority, ahead of cost or anything else. These systems cannot fail. There, there's no tolerance or room for for, for failure, for, uh, for structures that, uh, that uh, experience uh, various forms of differential settlement or, or, or sinking of sorts. And so it's important that ultimately the design be conservative to ensure that they're safe and operable, but also 
aggressive enough that um, that the capital cost of development and, and construction is carefully managed. In this case, the solution was to create a bespoke web of foundation types and depths, depending on the loads, location and ground conditions. In many cases, this meant switching from a simple concrete pad to installing deep reinforced concrete piles. We've got specific parts of the facility where we had more traditional, conventional, uh, you know, concrete foundations that go anywhere from uh, two to three meters deep. And now we have piles that have to go essentially to uh, refusal, uh, which are anywhere uh, about 30 uh, meters uh, deep. Refusal means all the way down to the bedrock. And given that this is actually um, right by the water, the, uh, the bedrock is actually quite low and has a sloping uh, uh, profile across the side as well. So the portion closest to the water obviously has a lower uh, than the one that's further inland. And so it creates sort of a design that evolves as we move from one side of the facility to the next. What's more, the team will keep on testing as they go, so that if they find the clay is more dense and less silty in certain locations, they can reduce the depth of piles, saving money where they can. Because the team want to make sure that the project is a success for many reasons, not least that this is a local company making a world-leading technology. This one was very exciting because it was part of the energy transition that we all heard of and it was real. It was happening, the, the capital was invested and it was in our backyard. This is Richard Fecto. I am a senior vice president for energy resources and industry for WSP in Canada. He says that when they were putting the proposal together to bid for the project, there was a lot of excitement among local engineers who, like Ali, wanted to play a role in a transition towards greener energy systems. If you are an a professional engineer in Quebec, you know about Intercap because it came from a university lab to a commercial scale. So it, uh, it was very uh, attractive for process engineers or project engineers to be part of that project. The founder, the actual founder of uh, Interchem was uh, a fellow a professor at the chemical engineering faculty at, at the Sherbrooke University. A chemical engineer by the name of Dr. Esteban Chornay and the Sherbrooke University is in Quebec. The project has also been supported financially by both the federal government and the local Quebec government. There's obviously, you know, a, a huge amount of encouragement and, and support and confidence put in Anakem and our solution by both the, the, the Canadian government and the Quebec government. So this is a factor as well. As I mentioned previously, there's a lot of perfect storm of conditions going on in Canada as well from the low CI electricity. Low carbon intensity electricity which factors into you know, the hydrogen and the oxygen that we're producing, but also low CI electricity for any process facility um, is going to be really important. So Canada has a lot of things going for it. Including its recently renewed focus on lowering emissions. The federal government is very aggressive in its climate change plan. Pierre-Olivier Pinot is a professor in energy market policy at the Business School at the University of Montreal. He knows all about the perfect storm that Andrea referred to. And the current government, which is a liberal government led by Justin Trudeau, is, is basically trying to make up for the wasted time uh, of the previous years. And we've been missing all our emission reduction targets for, for, you know, for many years now. Canada has benefited from a wealth of energy supplies. It's the world's fourth largest oil producer 
and fourth largest hydropower producer, with 81 gigawatts of installed capacity, accounting for around 60% of its electricity production. Low energy costs and plentiful availability created a culture of consumption. But the climate is changing in more ways than one. The biggest strength of the current plan in the, in, in the, you know, at the Canadian level is the, is the carbon tax that is currently implemented at $40 a ton with the perspective of, in, of increasing to $170 Canadian dollars per ton by 2030. And, and even if this level is not as high as what it should be to really uh, be able to meet the carbon neutrality and zero net emission targets we have for 2050, it is a very strong step in the right direction. One of the sectors that will be most affected by this is transport, and it faces other climate-related policy changes too. On different fronts, on the carbon tax, on the uh, cleaner fuels uh, mandates that the government is implementing, and there is a mandate for uh, clean fuel standards uh, that, is, yeah, that will start actually to be enforced uh, next year. The clean fuel standard will require liquid fuel, gasoline and diesel suppliers to gradually reduce the carbon intensity of the fuels they produce and sell for use in Canada over time, leading to a decrease of approximately 13% below 2016 levels in the carbon intensity of liquid fuels used in Canada by 2030. Then there is a lot of initiatives to you know, bring cleaner fuels to consumers to uh, reduce consumption by electrifying transportation, to make polluters pay uh, the carbon tax. And to my taste, there isn't enough yet in terms of you know, purely uh, reducing uh, consumption in transportation by finding you know, more, uh, more durable ways, more sustainable ways of transporting uh, stuff and uh, people around. Against this backdrop, it's not surprising that Enerchem see the transport sector as being a key market for their biofuels. Pierre Olivier agrees that they could play a significant role in decarbonising transport as part of a wider transition. In transportation, there's a, a, a wide variety of, of options that could be pursued. You know, the one that we tend to forget the most is train for freight transportation. You know, it's 90% less energy intensive than heavy trucks. And in Canada, and that's a different path than that what Europe has taken, in Canada and North America, heavy trucks have been increasing by uh, more than 150% in terms of uh, numbers, in terms of energy consumption and emissions. It is actually, freight transportation is the fastest growing sector in terms of emissions in Canada. And these trucks will need to decarbonize as fast as carbon price increases year on year. Hydrogen and electrification of these vehicles are potential solutions, but require large shifts in the infrastructure designed to support them. Biofuels can be used more readily, including blending them into diesel to reduce its carbon intensity. Biofuels are the most promising option for to decarbonize uh, the transportation sector in the short run because they can be directly used in the current stock of, of vehicles that we have in Canada. Compared to other options such as electrification or hydrogen, that would take much more investment and, and you know, longer and more structural changes in our transportation systems, biofuels can be used right now. So that's why it's a priority to develop them 
to make sure we have a, a lower carbon uh, option to still have the transportation and mobility needs uh, that we need to satisfy with, with, with a fuel that we can use without damaging the climate. This brings us on to the question of the definition of a biofuel, because one of the economic advantages of the Varem project is that it can create a consistently homogenous syngas from a variety of waste products. If it contains plastics, for example, what does that mean for the carbon intensity? Depending on the jurisdiction um, and the regulatory framework that exists, the biogenic portions are typically most highly valued in the fuels markets, and then the circular portions are normally focused on the chemical space. And logically, that means that you're taking the residual mixed plastics, so the residual plastics, and you're putting those back into the chemicals and plastics value chain. So the carbon then truly becomes circular and the biogenic portion is more highly valued in the fuel space. So th there are nuances around this. One of the main challenges for investors in this space is the uncertainty over how fuel prices, both fossil fuels and biofuels, will evolve. Really, the, the main challenge in terms of the space that we're in, deploying the technology, moving the projects forward, um, is really around product pricing uncertainty and being able to have enough data to be able to comfortably project the value of the products going forward for a substantial period of time. If you would have asked me the same question two years ago, I probably would have come at it from a point of view of regulatory uncertainty, which is still a factor. Um, but as every quarter goes by, this becomes less and less of a factor because there is much more commitment, longevity, um, very specific declarations by countries and governments and also by companies um, that have very large portfolios in the fossil-based fuels and chemical space to decarbonize, to put a, a substantial value on CO2 savings, that this is really becoming much less of an issue. Pierre-Olivier explains that pricing can be a challenge in Canada because of the variations between provinces, which means a lack of consistency across the country. Because the, the carbon prices that, I, that, that is existing in Canada is not the same across provinces because we, cannot, we could not agree in the past on a single carbon price. So we do have in Quebec uh, one specific carbon price, which is different from the federal carbon price. And that carbon price does not apply equally to all sectors. Uh, so for, 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 uh, for cars and trucks that are being used within Quebec, yes, there is a price, which is currently around 35 Canadian dollars a ton, which is lower than the federal price, but that Quebec price may evolve in a different way in the future. So that for developers, they don't know exactly what will be the actual carbon cost for fossil fuel users and that creates some kinds of uncertainty from from their on their end because they don't know they don't know the price of their competitor so they don't know exactly how they can price their own product competitively in the future and of course if they were sure that in 2030 the price of carbon would be 170 dollars in Quebec, then that would help them a lot because they, they would know that their product would sell against fossil fuel that would be extremely expensive because of the high carbon price. And this is a matter of policy. 
So politics are getting into the way of, of, of giving a, a stable economic environment for developers of such projects. From a waste perspective, Canada has the same lack of incentive to change as the energy sector, thanks to the availability of land. There's never been a huge uh, momentum for uh, incineration and gasification because, because basically uh, landfills were there, they were cheap, uh, and as every human, Canadians don't like to pay more and tend to, you know, to, tend to think that the environment is there to be you know, our, our landfill, so we just dump waste everywhere like, like most humans. And because in Canada we have lots of land, then we had greater opportunities to, to use these landfills uh, and then to fill them. But of course, we're reaching some point where people now realize that, you know, we cannot just grow these landfills uh, more and more. So we need to better manage waste and to, as much as we can, uh, develop a circular economy. Legislators are starting to change policy to support this. So in Quebec, recently, the government has, 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 you know, is, is, has you know, taken a deep view at what's happening with waste management. And they announced that they would increase the tipping fees, which are the fees paid to bring waste to landfill. Because landfill is the place of last resort for waste that can't be recycled or turned directly into something else. Waste that actually contains carbon that can be used if we have the right technology to capture it. This is where NRCHEM uh, is developing a technology which is, which is actually different from a really the, the high, level, high temperature uh, gasification that is currently being done in different countries like Japan. Uh, the NRCHEM technology is working at a lower temperature. So it is, it is, it is a unique technology that, is, that, doesn't bring, that doesn't need such a high temperature to turn the, the, the feedstock into uh, syn gas and, in, and then into uh, different types of biofuels. And of course, the feedstock itself can be flexible. So the variety of uh, feedstock that can be used, uh, the lower temperature and the different types of, um, different types of uh, outputs that it can provide, you know, the flexibility to, to basically being able to build different uh, fuels, liquid fuels for different uses, that's really the strength, I think, of the project. Engineering Matters is a production of Rebe Media. This episode was written and hosted by Bernadette Ballantyne co-hosted by Alex Conacher, sound engineering by Ross McPherson, series supervision by John Young, and our very own carbon recycler is Rory Harris. Special thanks to our episode partner, WSP, and to Enerchem. Thank you for listening. You can find Engineering Matters on all podcast apps, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And don't forget to check out our website and sign up to our newsletter for the latest engineering announcements and developments from all over the world.